Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and take them and turn to Psalm 24. Psalm 24. While you find that, I'll say a few words. Uh, the Bible is really clear. Uh, when, when Jesus says, Matthew chapter 6, a man cannot have two masters. For he'll either serve the one or hate the other, or he'll lo- love the one and, and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, is what he follows it by. Serve the Lord Christ, or whether we are serving sin. We're all serving someone in our lives. And if I were to ask you to take a magnifying glass and look across the scope of your life, who do you serve on an average day? Or perhaps more to the point, whom do you desire to serve? For Paul says, right, Romans 7, verse 24, the things that, oh, wretched man that I am, the things that I desire to do, I don't do, right? He says, because there's, there's this war inside me. So it's good for the Christian to also hear, not only who do you serve, that's a good question, but whom do you desire to serve? Um, Psalm 24 is um, structured by this king. Uh, there's three titles, and you'll see it in your points there. The king of creation, one and two. The king of salvation, three through six. And the king of glory, verses seven through ten. And in, in this uh, section, you could also, I, came, I had multiple outlines for this, although I just kept this and ran with it. The, but there's also, the whole of historical redemption is in the psalm, in Psalm 24. He has creation in the first two verses. He has the fall and the need of man in verses 3 through 6. And he has the savior of God's people in 7 through 10. He has the history of redemption in Psalm 24. And I wrote down another one. Uh, on the, and the Lord is king by right in verses 1 and 2. And the Lord is also uh, king by reclamation, if I can say that's a word. Reclaiming, reclamation. There we go. Uh, and that's verses 3 through 10. That would have been a two-pointer, which would have been too fun, so I did three. Here we are. But here we are in, verse, in, in Psalm 24. Remember, we're doing the cross, Psalm 22, the crook, Psalm 23, and the crown, Psalm 24. So we, we, and these, these are flowing in progression from each other. If you don't have a cross, you don't have a shepherd. And if you don't have a cross, there, there is no crown here. We're not going, we're, we're, we're moving on the spectrum of the biblical theological aspect where humiliation is preceding exaltation. And Christ in his role as king, which this is going to show, is inevitably a shepherd in Psalm 23. These are flowing and developing out of one another. Uh, And today we're going to try and get through as much of this psalm as I can. But I have to get to the end. Because if I don't get to the end of the psalm, we're just in travesty. And so uh, if I move faster through the first two points, you realize that I'm trying to get to the third point. And so uh, let me pray, and uh, then we'll read and we'll jump in. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the Psalter. Um, It is a treasure. And how treasurous it is in our troubles, in our joys, and leading us and helping us as Christians to commune 
with you. But most of all, it's a treasure because it speaks of our Savior, who himself was called a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And here it tells us of how he is so much greater than all. So we pray, Lord, come and help us to see him. We are, we are dull of seeing him because we, we find treasures in so many other places. And so help us to treasure the Lord Jesus because he is the greatest treasure. And we pray that you do it for his glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 24, uh, beginning in verse 1. A Psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. He will be, receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls. The Word of God endures forever. Well, see how this psalm begins. Right above verse 1 in your Bibles, the little subscript, a psalm of David. I brought this out each time in these three psalms. I want you to know it's significant for you. Whenever you read it, it sets the context. And in fact, I believe there's, there's only very few psalms in the first book of the Psalter, the first 41 chapters of the psalms, that are not written by David. But you'll see it gives you no historical account here. Uh, there's lots of thoughts of when, just like the previous uh, psalms. But, uh, but notice particularly, David is writing not from a historical standpoint at this, at this juncture. He's writing primarily, David, the king of Israel, is also a prophet. Acts 1.16 and Acts 4.25. He has prophetic voice. And David in this psalm is looking to a greater king. As David is not ascribing to himself the king of glory. He is looking to a king who will surpass him. And who will cause his lineage and his reign to be going forever which was his promise in 2 Samuel 7. And so as temporary fulfillment, maybe some in David, maybe when he brings the ark, maybe there's some, some of that in the psalm, but primarily prophetically looking beyond itself, looking to Jesus. Let's see how he begins, verse 1. He begins with the statement that we need to come and see 
Come and see the king, the king of creation, the king of salvation, the king of glory. Come and see the king, the king of creation. Verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. It begins with David looking at the work of creation. And looking at God's work of creation, he focuses on God's rights in creation. The earth is possessed by someone, the Lord's. And how much of the earth? The fullness thereof. And just to clarify, he uses a parallel. Notice, the earth is in parallel with the world. The world and those who dwell therein. He is is using a parallel to show you both extremes. The earth is the Lord's, the world is the Lord's. The fullness thereof is the Lord's, and all those who dwell therein is the Lord's. Did he leave anything out? Not a thing. What does the Lord possess? All things. Peculiarly, no matter what men may say, no matter what philosophers may say, you belong, and everything you have belongs to him. We are simply tenants in this world. We are tenants at will and we are a leaseholder upon most the most precarious nature because at any point we are liable to instantaneous ejectment from our leaseholdings. Because we we hold the things in this world and we have property in this world But at any moment, we might pass away out of this world. And we relinquish relinquish every bit of property we possess. No matter what Pharaoh used to think, your treasures do not go with you into the next life. They are left. They belong to the Lord and they return to the Lord. And it's actually, so he repeats it twice in verse 1 to tell you that the Lord is not simply uh, up in the sky. He is the possessor of all. What does Abraham Kuyper say? That there is not a square inch on planet earth. That the Lord does not say, mine, I rule over it. It belongs to me. Everything is mine. Now, that tells you a few things about the Lord. We won't spend much time here. But it tells you things like this. Nothing outside of his possession, the food you eat, the life you live, the house you live in, the children you bear, the wholeness of everything you know and belong is his. Uh, there used to be a common uh, phrase that, uh, you know, we, we, people would say things like, uh, you know, Uh, The devil owns these things or he rules over those things. There's none of that in the psalm. The Lord is ruling over all things. And notice the grounds in verse 2. In verse 2, he grounds why the Lord rules and possesses all things. He says, for he has founded it upon the sea and established it upon the rivers. For... Verse 2, 4, he is grounding why the Lord owns all things. And the argument goes something like this. Because God made the world, he therefore owns the world. 
But not only has he made the world, he upholds the world. And so by creation and by providence, everything belongs to him. Not only since he created everything, but also as Hebrews 1 verse 3 says, Jesus upholds everything. If he created everything and he upholds everything, everything belongs to him. Because if the Lord stops for one split second upholding all things in creation, what happens? Well, the earth probably tilts a little bit and we all freeze to death. The Lord owns us. God brings stability where there's instability. You see it with, he founded it upon seas, a place of chaos. He established it upon rivers, a place that's unable to establish things. Now, uh, in, incredibly, like I said, this is actually the work of the Son, and it glorifies Jesus. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1, uh, verse 3, as I said, Jesus uh, is, we can, we can turn there if you'd like to. Uh, it says in Hebrews chapter 1, when he's speaking of the exalted nature of Jesus, he says, he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and it says this about the work of Jesus. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Christ, every time your heart beats, is upholding you. The king of creation. So if someone takes food, it belongs to God. And if they go and offer it to idols, what are they doing? They're stealing from God and giving glory to something else. Right? It means that if, if someone takes not only food, but money, but time, but talent, but uh, whatever it is you possess and are, if you take it and give it to something that he has not purposed for you, it's theft, cosmic theft against the king of creation. And it's sorrowful that this is how Adam began and all of his progeny have continued. Now, I want you to come and see the king. Let us try to, keep, try to keep moving. The king of creation and the king of salvation. Notice this question in verse 3. The question's a question surely you've asked yourself, and I've asked myself. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? And the immediate expression would have brought the, the temple into view, Right? The hill of the Lord going up to Jerusalem. The, the, the holy place going into the temple. But it doesn't take much foresight to say he's speaking of a different temple. He's speaking of Hebrews 8.5, the one that that was shadowing. The heavenly temple. The, the earthly things are copies of the heavenly things. And who is going to actually ascend to the glorious place? The, the heaven of heavens. And who after he has ascended, the question goes twofold, who after he has ascended into heaven can actually stand or remain there? You get the question? That how do you get to heaven? And after you've gotten there, how do you remain in heaven? It's a serious question. And the Bible puts out that question and then answers it for you. And he says, here's the answer, verse 4. Who's going to ascend and who's going to stand? He who has clean hands. 
and a pure heart, the two positives, two negatives, who doesn't lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord. Now, I want you to get, he has clean hands, the things you do. A pure heart, the motive with which you do them. Who doesn't worship wrongly, doesn't lift up his soul to idols. Always has the Lord appropriately, preeminently set before him. Who doesn't swear deceitfully, who doesn't speak ill. Controls his tongue, tamed, the perfect man, James 1. He's the one who ascends. And he's the one who stands. Now, if you're honest with yourself, you have a serious problem. Because none of us have always done what is clean. None of us have always had motives that are pure. None of us have always held the Lord rightfully in his proper place. And none of us have tamed our tongues. We've failed in each of those places daily. And we cry with Paul, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? But there's good news in verse 5. The good news is something you should long for after reading verses 3 and 4. And he says in verse 5, this man... Notice, he'll receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from, get this phrase, the God of his salvation. God is called the God of his salvation. Meaning what? That he's coming and saving this man. But you say, what, what is the, the man who's pure in heart, who... Uh, has clean hands and doesn't lift up his soul out and doesn't swear deceitfully. He doesn't need saving. The problem is that's none of us. And so, and look at what he says in verse 6. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face, and notice how God's described, the face of the God of Jacob. Notice God is defined as the God of Jacob, the one who is deceitful and a deceiver. God saves those who aren't clean or pure, those who worship idols, and those who swear deceitfully. And it's seen in Jacob. And, and so what do, we, what do we have here? We have, we have a prototype for all of redemptive history in many ways. You have the fall, you have, you have our need, and you have God as a Savior right there in those few verses. Now, the truth of the matter is, none of us are righteous, but the Lord is a Savior. Uh, we see that in Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and it says in the next verse, and are justified by His grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We are sinners, but God is a great Savior. Now, we can get to that actual last point where I want to be. I'm sorry. I'm, I really like these last point, this last point. So I want you to come and see the king. The king of creation and the king of salvation. Aren't you glad 
that the Lord is the king of creation. It would not be safe in anyone else's hands. It's safe in his hands. Aren't you glad that the Lord is a savior? Praise the Lord. But the psalm begins and ends with the Lord being king and ruler. And we need to come and see the king of glory. Verse 7, there's a major transition. He says this phrase, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. David goes from speaking about the heavenly temple, saying, who can ascend and stand there, theoretically, to actually seeing someone ascend and stand in the heavenly temple. He goes from theoretically speaking about heaven to actually viewing prophetically the vision of heaven with a man ascending to the gates. And this man ascends. He's not just any man. He defines himself. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O eternal doors, ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. He defines himself with this phrase, the King of glory. What does he mean? A king who possesses in all its totality glory. Meaning, he's unparalleled in his nature. This king who is ascending is, is, is in every aspect of his person, his work, defined as glorious. He's glorious in every way. It, Hebrews 1 text we just read. After making purification for sins, Hebrews 1.3, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is what's happening in this history of redemption in scope in, ch in chapter 24. That Jesus, who is fresh off the cross and the tomb, now rides through the gates of the new Jerusalem. And, he, and he's ascending higher than the heavens, great and everlasting as they are. Those gates of pearl are all unworthy of him as he ascends. And he comes to the heavens which are not even pure in his own sight. And he stands at the gates and he says, gates, open. Open for me. And Jesus cries in verse 7, lift up your heads, O gates. With all their glory, they're not glorious enough for this, for this king. The gates have never opened for any man. But as Jesus ascends to these gates, he goes to open them. And, the, and it's almost, and you can hear it in verse 8. There's a dialogue that's entered into in the heavenly court as uh, as this king of glory is commanding the gates of heaven to open. And verse 8, it is as though on the other side of the gates a voice calls back. Who is this king of glory? Who speaks to the gates in such ways? 
Who can command the gates of heaven to be opened and for them to open? And it fits perfectly in ancient Near Eastern uh, thought because typically cities would have watchkeepers, right? Watchmen, Ezekiel, Ezekiel 18, standing on the watchtowers and watching for enemies. And here the watcher at the gate asks the question, who is this king of glory? And that is a great question. It's a question that's full of meaning and worthy of meditation that will be prolonged through eternity. Who is this king in his person? Who is this king in his nature? Who is this king in his character? Who is this king in his office, in his work, in his pedigree? Who is this king of glory? And the answer comes from this glorious Christ as he stands at the gates of heaven. Jesus, after making all things and redeeming all things, now sends above all things. And he says in verse 8 to this, to this question, who is this king of glory? He says, the Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty and in battle. You, he's, the angel asks, who is it? He says, who am I? I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I am strong and I am mighty. I have shown my might in battle. I have conquered sin, the devil, and death itself. Open the gates. The psalm records one who can enter the holiest of places on his own pedigree. And after he entered that place, could sit down on the throne. The application of this is, is so multifaceted for each of us. This is the Christian's hope in a song. Who are you as a Christian? The New Testament grounds it right here. We don't talk enough about the ascension of Jesus. But in Christ's ascension is the Christian hope. How do you know that Christ is interceding for you? Because he has ascended. How do you know that you yourself will make it to heaven? Because where he has gone, there I also am. How do you know that your life is, is, is wrapped in his own? He says in Colossians 3 that you are not your own. That you're dead and you're made alive with this Lord Jesus. And you're seated with him, Ephesians 1. How do you know you have a high priest? It's all right here. We know because he's ascended. We know because he's seated. This is the ground of every bit of our faith and our justification and our hope that Jesus has gone to the gates of heaven and broken locks and swung them open and went down the corridor of heaven and sat down on the throne. The king of glory. He repeats it in verses 9 and 10. Verses 7 and 8 are repeated basically in verses 9 and 10 which are emphasizing what? 
the ascension of Christ. He says, verse 9, Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. And they ask again, Who is this King of glory? And he says, The Lord of hosts. That is, the Lord of armies. He is the King of glory. Jesus has given his life and taken it up and ascended that you and I might have hope all through this world. There is not one square inch in which he does not rule and say is his. And that's the one that you're united to. And so let's go and trust him. It will be all the better for it. Let's pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you for the King of glory, the Lord Jesus. Uh, We do pray, come and help us to see him high and lifted up and greatly exalted. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.